I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Remember leaving the house and going to stuff? Well, it's back because Great Big Owl is bringing some of our favorite shows to the London Podcast Festival starting September the 2nd. And we'd love to see you there. So if you're a fan of Two Mr. P's in a podcast. Brian and Roger. My mate Water Toaster. Friends with Friends. The The One Show Show. Richard and Greta. From Queer to Eternity. Wrestle Me. Or just daytime drinking. Then go to the King's Place website and grab some tickets now. And buy some tickets, we ideally mean eight tickets, that's one for each show. Actually bring a friend and make that 16 tickets. Great Big Owl. The only podcast network with the audacity to ask you to buy 16 tickets in one go. But we'll be thrilled if you just buy one. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 61 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham. With me once again are Sarah B. Hi, hi. And Simon Price. Hello, hello. So, on the block for this episode is July the 25th, 2003. And I'm not going to lie to you, pop crazy youngsters, right now, I'm feeling like a cross between a high court judge and my <laughs> mum when I took her in for her first curry. She said that I wasn't to worry if she didn't like anything as she already had a pan of chips cut up her own waiting for her just in case. I'm, I'm oblivious to this era and I'm fearful of this era. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> what have you got um, cut up waiting at home for you if you don't get along with this Top of the Pops? My wrists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bit stupid because it's it's still Top of the Pops. It's a still pretty much the same format. It's still number one. Still number one. Sort of. Asterisk. The, the acts that are on tonight, then, then you know, there's very little that's shit in this episode, I have to say. <laughs> but I don't know fuck all about virtually any of them. Mm-hmm. So my first question to the panel is, what is the difference between the music of 2003 and the music of today? Because, to my mind, this episode could have gone on last week. I think the answer is very little. Mm. And that may just be a function of us being old farts who can't differentiate the minute differences and shifts in pop. But I do think it's an objective, uh, sort of real fact that sort of new trends and and changes in in music have slowed right down. Probably from the late 90s onwards. And yeah, you could pretty much parachute most of this episode into 2021, and very little of it would seem particularly anachronistic. I suppose things that have come along since include, you know, that kind of mumble rap stuff Mm. that you'd probably expect to see some of that going on in a more modern episode, kind of emo rap and all that business. But 
other than that, boy bands, you know, will always be with us and dancehall, Jamaican reggae inflected hits and the sort of token metal thing. And if you sort of make the uh, comparative leap backwards from 2023, sort of 18 years earlier than that, which would be what, 1985. Oh my God, so much is, it would have changed, wouldn't it? So Yeah, there's there's probably a certain kind of recirculation and recyclement of, of sort of influence that is now the, the sort of churn of it is steadier maybe Mm. and there's kind of more cross-pollination now between genres and genre is composting down and down and down Mm. but you know that was happening here Mm. it's a tricky question that's an imponderable which i'll have to ponder for a bit longer i only said it to delay having to go through this episode so you know just (laughs) tell me to fuck off and we'll get on with it (laughs) all right then pop craze young says it is now time to go way back to july of 2003 always remember we may coat down your favorite band or artist but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have We've got intruders in the building and they're eyeing up our talent. Oi, teacher, leave those kids alone. It's still number one. It's top of the pops. It's half past seven on Friday, July the 25th, 2003. And top of the pops, as is its want in its waning years, is on its arse. The falling ratings of the show and calls for its demise has been an oft-used stick which the tabloids have beaten the BBC with ever since the early 90s and the show has been locked into a pattern of low ratings leading to a new producer, leading to a makeover, leading to rising ratings, leading to falling ratings, leading to another producer and so on and so on panel it seems like top of the pops has been on death row for 10 years by this point what's what's the reason for that i mean there's kind of lots of reasons and and no reason i guess Mm. primarily anything that's been going for this long it's kind of not a natural lifespan for a show is it you know it's like animals kind of when you see like really old animals they always look really weird because nature kind of does them in when they're still young. The show's been going for 40 years and it sort of lost its way in that profound and irreparable way that long-running things generally do. It's like the centre cannot hold. Whatever you're doing, if you've been doing it for so long that like nobody who was involved in it at the start is still involved, that culture has changed, every element has changed and there are such forces being brought to bear on it that like nothing can survive that pressure... It's like The Simpsons has now been bad for Mm. longer than it was great. And its legacy is completely secure and it will always have been a great show. But, you know, it it is not what it was. And the same thing has happened to Top of the Pops, really, is that everything about it has changed. And there's a kind of Mm self-consciousness when you start to focus intently on every aspect of a thing and try to analyse and micromanage what exactly is going wrong and what's right and what do we like and what do we not like? Who's the audience? What side of the bed do they get out of in the morning? How many eyelashes do they have? You can end up sort of destroying things by just overanalyzing them. Mm. When you start a thing, there's an innocence about it. And everyone is, let's put on a music show. We'll have some bands. It'll be lovely. And then after a few decades, you're like, but do people still like this? And why? And why not? And 
that process, I think, is just like, it's just death by a thousand cuts, isn't it? Mm. I like this idea of uh, TV shows having a natural longevity like animals. It's like the hay flick limit. Do you know about that? No. Yeah, it's this theory. I, I learnt it from uh, going to one of those Gunther von Hagen's uh, exhibitions, you know, where he, he plastinates yeah. human bodies. Oh, um, yeah. It's, it's this theory that um, biological cells in, in an animal's body or human body can only replicate themselves a finite number of times and then you just conk out. Mm. This is why immortality is not a thing. Although there are um, things that do challenge that. For example, lobsters. Lobsters. lobsters yeah, yeah. Which, which <laughs> some, some types of lobster can live to be at least sort of 700 until some arsehole catches them and boils them in a pan. But yeah, the hayflick limit for, for television programmes possibly is a thing. I was wondering about Top of the Pops in 2003 and... It had a few predators out there, as mm. as do lobsters, but the internet was not yet really one of them. Um, no. and the internet was is still in its infancy, and YouTube hadn't even been launched yet, I think I'm right in saying. No. So in terms of getting your f- visual fix of pop, um, the internet really wasn't killing it. But what the internet was doing no. was changing the way people um, kind of got together as music fans and how you construct your identity as a music fan which in the past, it would always be a consensual group effort that you would be a rude boy or a metaler or or a hip-hop kid, but you would be doing it kind of in definition against everything else that was going on, and it was in the context Mm. of everything else that was going on. It would still have a nod to the rest of the world and be part of that world. And it was much easier by the early years of the millennium to consume your music and to construct your tribal identity. Mm. It's not just the centre cannot hold. The the, the centre wasn't even there and being looked at. You know, Top of the Pops was originally central to, to culture, but it sort of didn't play that role anymore. So once upon a time, you know, it would gather everything in, all these genres, every genre, every little scene, it would gather in the sort of most popular versions of that and then amplify them and make them more popular again, whether you're, you know, a jangly indie band like Orange Juice or a horrible heavy metal band like Motorhead, Mm. it would still have the function of taking you to the next level and then bringing you into the homes of people in shitty little towns who don't get to see gigs. And I I think that, that had kind of gone by the millennium i really do top of the pops was one of the bbc's flagship shows alongside things like match of the day and panorama but none of those other shows got fucked about with as badly as top of the pops did Mm. by the time top of the pops had moved out to fridays the charts had moved from tuesdays to sundays which meant the charts were even more out of date by the time it got on top of the pops yeah because i suppose cd uk on itv would would be less than 24 hours after top of the pops but dealing with a brand new chart Mm. Because essentially, CD UK was using the midweek chart, wasn't it? You know, yeah, sort of a spoiler for the you know the Sunday That's evening right, chart. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in the fast-moving world of pop, um, I, I suppose Top of the Pops was looking pretty stale by the time Friday came yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, and of course with Countdown UK, when that became a thing, it turned out that bands were more interested in being on that than they were on Top of the Pops because if you can get your shit out in front of the kids on a Saturday morning just before they're going into town with their pocket money, it, it's a better situation for them. That's a very clever bit of programming. Mm. It's weird how it becomes, you know, it, it's just it's not cool anymore. I mean the the kind of the great thing about it is that it was never cool in some way, but it kind of was by default, mm. I think. And yeah. I mean, it's very snazzy at this point. But the trouble is, as we know, as we have experienced in in our careers, once you start trying to chase an audience and pander to them, like people know mm, when they're yeah. being pandered to. Yes. Like even even yeah. dickheads know when you know they go, wait a minute, you're pandering to me. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's kind of, it's just turning that way and that's 
you know, it's kind of in the, the, the death spiral. of it's, it's the poochie stage of Top of the Pops, <laughs> isn't it, this? It really is. They've rasterized this episode of Top of the Pops by 10%. <laughs> However, there has been a steady hand on this tiller for the past six years, and his name is Chris Cowett. Born in Sunderland in 1961, Chris Cowie went to Rye Hope Comprehensive School, where his English and drama teacher was Malcolm Garrett, who came to national attention in the mid-70s when his school production of the David Essex film Stardust made the cover of The Enemy and was filmed for an episode of the London weekend art show Aquarius. After the broadcast of that programme, Gary was approached out of the blue by a viewer called David Putnam, who persuaded him to pack up teaching and get involved in TV. After Gary landed a job as a researcher at Time Tees, he would regularly get former pupils, including Kawe, involved, and in 1979, Kawe was filmed and interviewed at his night job, DJing at the local Mecca Ballroom for Time Tees' new pop programme, All Right Now. After the interview, he was approached by Angela Wanfor, the head of Time Tees' kids' programming, and invited to audition for a presenting gig. He was immediately picked up by the station and given the job of co-presenting Check It Out, a local bi-weekly youth show, which is best known nowadays for the interview with Public Image Limited, which they commenced by showing the band a film of local band The Angelic Upstarts being interviewed by Cowher as they took a stroll along the Tyne, where they accused John Lydon of selling out and being an old man, called Public Image the worst band ever, and stated that the Sex Pistols would have been a hundred times better with Jimmy Percy as their lead singer, which led to Lydon tossing his mic at Cowie and walking off set and also effing as well as jeffing. <laughs> After all right now and check it out, wound down in 1982, Gary was given the job of producing a new Time Tease pop show for the brand new Channel 4, The Tube. And while Cowie was still working as a presenter, he also became a trainee researcher on the show and by the mid-80s had worked his way up the ranks to become involved with tube specials and outside broadcasts. In 1987, just before the tube was phased out, Cowie went freelance as an assistant producer and linked up with Gary and Wanfor's new production companies, leading him to get involved with Wired, Big World Cafe, The White Room, Jonathan Ross Presents, Channel 4's mid-90s coverage of Glastonbury, and linking up with Gary again to co-produce the first televised Brit Awards since the Fleetwood Fox debacle. In the spring of 1997, while he and Gary were working on creating a TV version of the Pepsi chart show for Channel 5, he was approached by the BBC to take over from Rick Blacksell as the producer of Top of the Pops and rescue a programme that was on the verge of being axed. Once installed as the new boss of the Pops, he reinforced changes that had already been set in motion by the interim producer Mark Wells, such as phasing out the practice of celebrity guest presenters and replacing them with a pool of Radio 1 DJs and CBBC presenters and getting acts to record performances in the studio in advance before their new singles had been released in order to use them when they actually made the charts. He also scrapped Red Hot Pop by Vince Clark as the theme tune in preference of crashing straight into the first single of the night. 
More importantly, he clamped right down on videos unless absolutely necessary, telling record companies that if they wanted their acts on the show, they would have to appear on set or not at all. This culminated in the most complaints ever made for an episode of Top of the Pops in December of 1997, when he was told that the Teletubbies, who had got to number one that week, would be unable to appear in the studio because they never left Teletubby land. (laughs) (laughs) Leading Cowie to play the video for only 40 seconds at the end. Yeah, fuck you, Tipsy Whipsy, or whatever the fuck you're called. In May of 1998, he commissioned a new-ish theme tune, a drum and bass version of Whole Lot of Love, a new, cleaner, 60s-inspired branding, which he plastered all over the set. Then, in 2001, the BBC decided to push EastEnders out to four episodes a week, which would require more space at Elstree, meaning that Top of the Pops had to squat at the Riverside Studios for a bit and was eventually brought back to its spiritual home in Television Centre in a studio built to Cowie's exact specifications and relaunched once again. While Cowie was being credited for writing the ship, adding on an extra 3 million viewers by the end of his first year, his paymaster sought out new revenue streams for the Pops, franchising the show out to Germany, France, Italy, Netherlands and Turkey, with the BBC version being exported to 87 countries, sometimes intact, other times with a local presenter doing the links. This, alongside the Top of the Pops magazine, which was first published in 1995 as a rival to Smash It's and was selling half a million copies a month at its peak, video and DVD sales of Top of the Pops performances and a compilation CD series meant that Top of the Pops was bringing in an estimated £20 million a year to the BBC coffers. In 2001, the first edition of the Top of the Pops Awards, an attempt to give the BBC its own Brits, was broadcast, and a year later, Top of the Pops Saturday, a spin-off show bolted onto BBC One's Saturday morning programming, was introduced. However, by the summer of 2003, the viewing figures are dropping again, and Cowie has been making noises about more wholesale changes. He's already said that the top 40 is full of crap because they're dictated by record companies and no longer fulfills its role of providing a list of the most popular singles in the country, possibly due to the deployment of Judy Zook's satin tour jackets. <laughs> in an era where 20,000 single sales can bag you a number one single, he's pushing for the charts to be determined by the value of sales as opposed to volume and for radio plays to have more of an influence as they do in America. So, yes, Chris Cowie, a man with a with a rock-solid pedigree and also someone who clearly got what Top of the Pops was supposed to be all about. Um, in the interview for The Guardian to commemorate his first year in the job, he said, The most important thing about Top of the Pops is that it's BBC One at 7.30 prime time. I remember watching it as a kid and your dad would like something, your mum would like something else, my brother and sister would like other things. It's real family viewing. Well, is it? Is it now? 
First of all, there's so much to unpack with that whole backstory of Gary and Cowie. Yeah, I know. Sorry I waffled on Pulp Craze Youngsters, but I had to get all that shit out. Because the footage of the uh, of, of the Ryhope Comprehensive, which is uh, um, just outside Sunderland, um, their, their production of Stardust, um, directed by Mr. Gary. Yeah. Um, it's, it's there. I'm sure you'll put it on, yes. the, uh, on, on, the, on the playlist. Oh, the playlist most definitely. The, but yeah, um, if you watch it, I mean, first of all, you've got... Russell Harty introducing it. And I, I don't get it. I don't get why NME and ITV are so interested in this. It's what schools do or did. Mm. I suppose you can compare it to all the fuss over the Langley Schools Music Project, if you remember that. So uh, yeah. for those who don't know what, that that was uh, in 1976 and 77, there was a school teacher in rural Canada called Hans Fenger, who got the children to record these enthusiastic but very lo-fi versions of songs like Calling Occupants and Help Me Rhonda and Space Oddity, complete with all the sort of guileless bangs and crashes of a typical junior school orchestra, um, but performed with this real joy and charm. And, and the tapes were rediscovered and released as an album in 2001, and it kind of went viral, and it's now considered a masterpiece of outsider music. And it was actually performed live at the Royal yeah. Festival Hall in 2002 as uh, part of David Bowie's Meltdown Festival with London's school kids uh, instead of uh, what they should have done was get the middle-aged survivors of the 70s recordings <laughs> that would have been amazing <laughs> yeah. but the point with Langley schools is um, it was discovered decades later and therefore it served as an evocative mm. time capsule which might have been the case with the Ryhope comprehensive stardust if the tapes had been discovered years later but what I don't get I'm really amazed that NME and ITV gave a shit at the time what's What's that about? Well, before that, they'd done a production of Tommy. Right. And I think on both occasions, they, they did the stage show before the actual films came out. Oh, right, okay. I think Gary was seen as stereotypical 70s trendy teacher. Oh, God, isn't he just? Yes. Fucking hell. <laughs> yes. By the way, there's loads of wrongness in that Rye Hope thing. I mean, they, they stage a New Faces panel show, and there's a girl group who are billed as the Ronettes, but they sing to Duron Ron, which is a crystal song, and that really annoys me for a start. But the panel has this limp-wristed gay stereotype on it, which everyone in the audience finds hilarious. And there's loads Mm. of sexist objectification of the six-form girls, right? And the ITV crew isn't exactly innocent of that. There's lots of lingering on the girl group from the neck down. Yes! And, And then they interview them about their outfits, and one of the girls explains, Mr. Gary got a special person in to decide what we should wear white jumper and a black bra so it shows through black hot pants black (laughs) boots and black fishnets fucking a special person eh mr (laughs) gary a special person Mm. wasn't jules holland was it christ i I guess it's interesting in hindsight in terms of television history because of that kind of macam mafia that emerged from all this and first of all gary getting a job in tv and then him handing out jobs to some of his former pupils. Yeah, why don't we have fucking teachers oh, fuck, like that? Yeah, exactly. Including Cowie, of course. Uh, Cowie's in the cast of the Rye Hope Stardust. Yes. And he's, I don't you think, to look at even, he's very much Gary's mini-me. Mm. All right, so he ends up as exec <laughs> producer, Top of the Pops. I've got to say, <laughs> I can't hear the name Cowie without thinking of Calatoly Sisters on the day-to-day, <laughs> where she goes, and it was a rather Cowie night for the pound. It stood at 3.9 against the German Bordello. That's at 0.5 against the Portuguese Starling, and down 100 against the bitch chris <laughs> yes exactly oh and uh, and uh, also on on uh, youtube and i'm sure you'll give this to the pc wise on the playlist as well is the um that version of was it called check it out the show yes. it's basically nosing around 
at, at this point, um, Cowie looks like Bobby Ball, yes, doesn't he? Yes, very much um, so. And obviously, I don't know about the rest of you, but obviously I'm on Rotten's side yes. here. Oh, total stitcher, wasn't it? He's been fucking ambushed by Cowie and Mency from the Angelic Upstarts, who, by the way, doesn't look very punk with his nice centre part. No. <laughs> um, but but they, they think Rotten's sold out because his new band isn't punk and because they've moved on and made their music more complex, mm. which is bollocks. I mean, I'm, I'm on Team Rotten all the way yes. uh, oh incidentally Cowie's co-presenter if you close your eyes sounds exactly like Lauren Laverne which is disconcerting <laughs> I, I suppose she would obviously coming from, from that town but yeah he's not averse to nobbling a famous act as as we're going to see mm. on this episode actually ah. mm. something very similar happens later on mm. mm-hmm. I think the thing with uh, the thing with Cowie is he's he's that sort of very confident chancer and hustler of the sort I'm sure we've all met a hundred of in the industry like they're not all called Crispin some of them are just called Chris. <laughs> like these are the guys who are always going to be our bosses, and they'll be dead friendly to us. And then, as soon as they turn their backs, we don't exist to them. That's who. That's who Cowie is. He's a. Yep. He's an operator, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, people like that get shit done, but uh, you know they are remarkably ruthless. I think. He also said it's really important that there are things in top of the pops that one group of people should like and another is alienated by. Then it swaps round. The reason the program is doing well is because we embrace that idea that pop music is diverse. Top of the pops, to some extent, is a program for people who don't necessarily like music, <sighs> don't necessarily buy CDs and who aren't necessarily still part of youth culture. But if they only dip their toe in the water of that culture once a week, they watch Top of the Pops. Now, these are very fine words, but they're buttering no parsnips with me. And it's all down to the BBC's decision to move Top of the Pops to Fridays. We can't move away from it, because when that happened, the concept of family viewing is is just gone, Mm. because your mum's always going to want Coro on. Yeah. In 2003, the highest rating programme in the country was the episode of Coronation Street, where Richard Hillman, the... Weatherfield mass murderer drowned that got 19.4 million viewers and that is a colossal amount for this century you know England's got to lose in a final for those kind of numbers nowadays yeah I guess they weren't even trying to compete on a level footing with Coronation Street they weren't even thinking well some people will just almost on a coin toss decide which to go for Mm. it's very much all right then Coronation Street has millions and millions of viewers and we'll just skim off another three million off the top who were pop kids yeah you know as his comments for people who still want to dip a toe into music well he's talking to someone like me in 2003 and people like me in 2003 are either already in the pub on a friday evening or getting ready Mm. to go to the pub friday night is not a night for watching telly you've got to have a major life-changing event to keep me in the house on a friday night were you watching it sarah because we're slightly different ages and yeah I don't think I was. Um, I don't know what else I was watching. I mean, I wasn't watching Corrie at that point, but um, I used to, you know, that was a thing that I I saw when I was a kid because everybody watched it. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't. I just, I don't know. It said nothing to me about my life at that point, I guess. I mean, he's a solid choice to oversee a music programme, but the problem is, it's Top of the Pops, which is more than a music programme. Judging by the interviews he's given since he took over, he's clearly a paid-up member of the Campaign for Real Music. Although the insistence on live performances has been relaxed, he's, he's clearly not keen on miming, is he? There's a video on YouTube of him uh, g- giving viewers a guided tour of, yes. uh, of the Top of the Pops studio, which is 
quite revealing, isn't it? Yeah. For a start, I quite like... I mean, he's obviously been given a big budget because yes. everything everything behind the scenes looks the same as front of scenes, as it <laughs> yeah, were. Yeah, it's a bit yes. weird. Everything's white plastic. No more darkness. Yeah. Unless the, unless the darkness is on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, David Stubbs wouldn't be able to give his usual spiel about the, the darkness in the corners of the screen here because there isn't any, yeah. yeah. It's a bit sort of Corova Milk Bar from Clockwork Orange meets the exactly. Mondrian. <laughs> it's a bit Mondrian as well, yeah. Um, and yeah, he's been given a big budget by the look of things. Um, mm. And the whole thing is this sort of um, labyrinthine complex. There's an actual bar called the Star Bar, which we're going to yes. come to later. Uh, oh, God. And there's the top of the Pops magazine office right there in the middle of it. Yes. It's not farmed out somewhere else. And as he's walking about, he, he has got that trendy teacher energy, hasn't he? He's got that Phil Redmond energy of middle-aged men with, in a yes. suit but with long hair, which is always a bit of a red flag. Yeah, <laughs> in yeah. jeans, yeah. Um, there's, a bit, there's a bit where he goes into the control room and he fades up a bit of Puddle of Mud, who are that dreadful <laughs> third-wave grunge band. Puddle of Mud with two Ds. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> yes. and, and he goes, pretty good, huh? Which, uh, which it, it yes. plainly is not. And uh, Oh, and he makes a point of telling us that one of the Top of the Pop stages that night we'll later be hosting one of my favorite bands i saw them the other night foo fighters mm. <laughs> yes yes dad you're very trendy we get it yes <laughs> it's all a bit weird this isn't it it's like hey gang welcome to my gaff mm. people are very at ease now with the, the whole branding thing which i first started to become cognizant of when the maker went under and it's like well they kept mm. the brand alive artificially for like a month <laughs> yeah thanks by keeping yeah. the the adverts bit yes. wasn't it? it was the um back muso page, bit yeah yeah the muso bit and kind of grafted it into the enemy with the logo on it which is like do you remember that time when they they managed to grow a human ear on a guy's arm <laughs> so that they could, like, yeah. they could yeah. like transplant it onto it so it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies a bit i just sort of have brand ptsd from that so it's like ah oh, it's the top of the pops brand oh no it's it's basically it's all over at this point yeah i don't know i, I suppose what he was doing was was kind of in, in that respect was similar to what conor mcnicholas was doing with nme in you know turning it into this monolithic brand that, that went across several platforms and yeah, I, yeah. I think it's quite clever, yeah. you know. He's he's made it into this syndicated international franchise. Yeah, he's he's Ikeaified. Yes, it, I exactly. Guess. It's, it's, sort of it's, flat it's, yeah, yeah. it's flat pack. It's kit form. It's modular. It's so mm. they had exactly the same stage, exactly the same backdrop, whether it's in Germany or Italy. So if a band couldn't make it to the London um, studios, they they could perform in one of the Continental Studios, and the footage would be patched into the main show, which I strongly suspect happened in one of these cases we're going to see, by the way. So, yeah, it, it is this sort of modular, flat-packed IKEA version of Top of the Pops. And I think it, it is quite clever as a business model. Yeah, yeah. You know, got a handle That's that. the problem, though, isn't it? Because people don't want to watch a business model. No, I know. When we were young, we didn't go away and go, fucking hell, what an amazing business model that was <laughs> No, true, night. but I, th- I think he's, he's made a good decision by focusing on live or at least you know mimed performance rather than videos because you could see videos pretty much fucking everywhere at at this point yeah whereas this footage which has got what he hoped would would become iconic um top of the pops backdrop that mondrian white plastic stuff everywhere Mm. so that when that gets resold around the world or you know for all time really Mm. right until the, the present day People will look at it. It's, oh, there's there's so and so. I'm not going to sort of spoil a, a very famous star who appears in this episode. But there they are on top of the pops, rather than just there's the fucking video that we could see anywhere. So I, I think that that was kind yeah. of smart. I yeah. guess it was, but I I kind of miss the videos. There's just a um, because you know as as we know you can get some spectacular feats of artistry in in pop videos mm. that you mm-hmm. know and things that we mm. we still talk about now and we still remember and you know that and when you hear the music that's the image that comes to mind. I mean there's you know there aren't really any 
well, apart from maybe Frankie, like what music is there now where the first mental image that comes to mind is a top of the pops performance as opposed to a video? I, that maybe now that I've said that, that's very controversial, isn't it? But do you know what I mean? There are lots from the past, I, but I, I, I do see what you mean, and I suppose he's made a rod for his own back there because essentially by mm. shunning the artistry and, and the excitement and the spectacle of videos, you then have to make sure that pretty much every episode of your show has got something equally fucking memorable. But yeah, it's, it's on a which stage. you're not going to get. You're just not, and so it's like there's a variety to it, which which is now lacking, which does which makes mm. it more monotonous when everything mm. is a performance. I think that was, and also there's the idea. Everyone now there's the whole thing of everything being curated. You know, it's like if you mm. <laughs> literally everything, it's like I curated this fucking sandwich that I'm having for lunch. But it's like it's curated videos. It's like somebody has chosen that. Like I would always trust that someone had had a choice in like, well, there's five videos, I'm going to pick this one to show to the people, you know. So you, you would get a sense that somebody wanted you to see it, you know. But I mean, I'll tell you what, the just as a side note, the having the magazine office like right in the studio, mm. I, mean, I guess it's convenient in some ways, but it just reminded me of uh, I had a brief writing gig in an office in the middle of Soho and it was above a, a you know, a strip club. And so at like <laughs> five o'clock in the afternoon, you could just hear this weird rattling noise, which I realised was like the, the pole. It was a pole going <laughs> as the weight of a woman kind of hung off it. Amazing. You know. It's quite distracting. <laughs> when I worked at Paul Raymond, we were right next to the windmill. And the only thing we could hear in the afternoon was the theme tune to Take the High Road, <laughs> because that's what all the strippers used to watch. No way. <laughs> on the team, right? Yeah. I was going to say they were stripping to that music. That's a challenge, you know, that's, that's this is a warm up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'd just be there tapping away, and all of a sudden you'd just there. There we go. Oh, yeah, there we go. Strippers are having a break. God bless them. <laughs> Your hosts tonight. Born in Paris in 1976, Liz Bonin relocated to Dublin at the age of nine with her parents and ended up studying biochemistry at Trinity College. After graduating, she joined the Irish girl band Chill, but apparently the world didn't need a Celtic spy skills at the time, and after they were dissolved, she went into television, presenting the RTE kids' programme The Den, Telly Bingo, and the Irish fashion show Off The Rails. In 2002, she relocated to London and became an entertainment correspondent for Rise, Channel 4's short-lived digital clock nomenclature breakfast show, which once registered a rating of zero viewers one morning. (laughs) Luckily, one of the few people who were watching Rise was Chris Cowher, who offered her a presenting gig in May of 2002, and she's now part of a rotating talent pool which currently includes Edith Bowman, Colin Murray, Reggie Yates, Sarah Kaywood and Richard Bacon. Her partner this week, born in Northwood, West London in 1981, Fern Cotton was the daughter of a sign writer and an alternative therapist who was also a distant relative to Bill Cotton, the former controller of the BBC who destroyed Ruby Flipper in 1976 because a black man lifted a white woman up once. At the age of 15, she began her presenting career when she won a competition to become a TV presenter and was given a spot on the GMTV kids show The Disney Club, moving to CITV in 2000 to present Draw Your Own Tunes and the kids' computer show Mass. 
A year later, she was approached by CBBC to present the kids' science show Eureka, while also doing the CITV kids' art and craft show Fingertips, eventually replacing Danny Bear in the Saturday show, the replacement for Live and Kick-In on BBC One. It was only a matter of time before she was funnelled into the Top of the Pops presenting team and she made her debut in February of this year. This is her sixth appearance on Top of the Pops. Wow, chaps. By this time, as Morrissey might have said, in order to present Top of the Pops, one must, by law, possess a fanny. (coughs) As we've discussed before, from the mid-90s, the gender balance of Top of the Pops presenters has completely swung the other way. Why is that? Well, I, I do like this quote that I've, I dug out of a, an interview with uh, Chris Cowie, where apparently he had a look at every male DJ on Radio 1 and decided they were all too ugly to become a presenter. <laughs> so so that that's possibly one reason. Well, that's, that really is turning things on its head from where they used to... That used to be a, a, a positive plus. Mm-hmm. You, if you mm. look terrifying and creepy then you know hey welcome aboard Um, here are some naive young girls you can slip your arm around on screen they're all right aren't they 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 look good together they but i mean it's a very it's they're very professional and they're very kind of they're they're slightly too professional in a way that makes me wince a little bit i'm kind of pulled in two directions with top of the pops where i get frustrated with it for being so shonky and then when Mm. they make it less shonky it's like but that's not top of the pops at all. It's supposed to be a <laughs> slightly crap. I mean, Liz Bonin's certainly no thicko, and, and Fern Cotton has been doing this sort of thing for eight years by now. So they are professionals, but you wouldn't necessarily call them pop people, would you? They've definitely gone for, you know, it's presenters above all else rather than, you know, nerds of any sort or, yeah. you know. But uh, Liz Bonin is really great. She has gone on to do a lot of nature stuff, mm. including a, a BBC programme called Animals in Love, where she uh, hung out with some bonobos. Oh. <laughs> and tickled them it's like which oh, i think god. this should this should go in the um in a complete what well, you're saying oh my god like this is going to be because we all know well, i i don't know if people do know about bonobos they're the they're the apes that just have sex all the time but on this occasion they're not they're just they're young ones they're being tickled by li- a delighted lisbon in and it's very wholesome oh. content indeed and yeah oh. she's really great and she's very telegenic and um, also, um, apparently she turned down FHM when they were like, hey, Liz, yes. hey, Liz, come and do you want to come and do us a spread? Do you want to do that thing where you pull one side of your pants way down over your hip? <laughs> and that's the thing, isn't it? Mm. And she said, nah, you're all right. No, you're all right. Yeah. So fair dues. Yeah, I like them. I have to admit, um, I'd never heard of Liz Bonin until watching this episode of Top of the Pops the other day. Yeah. She completely passed me by somehow. Um, I know she mainly makes nature programs now. She's sort of bit basically being groomed as the new Attenborough. But I don't really watch those those shows. So she's no, brand new. You hate nature, don't you? I hate nature. Um, you hate nature. You hate nature. You oh, hate nature, don't you? God. Once we, see, once we popped, we can't stop with the Dexys references. <laughs> yeah, so she's brand new to me. But I've got to say, I could not be more impressed by her. Um, mm. I mean, for a start, there's her backstory. Yeah, she's mixed race of West Indian heritage. Um, yeah. Trinidad on her mum's side, Martinique on her dad's side. And growing up mixed race in a country as white as Ireland, 
I can't even imagine. I mean, people shouted the N word at her on the streets in Dublin when she was mm. a kid. And mm. to to have the strength, not only to come through that, but to actively put yourself in the public eye, takes a sort of streak of steel, I would say. And we've seen mm. what happens to high profile women of colour in the media repeatedly of late. I mean, with yeah. the the way Alex Scott and Naga Manchetti have been treated. So there's there's that for mm. for starters. And you know, Liz Bonin is just she's obviously really smart. And obviously just really sound. I mean, she also, mm. as well as the bonobo thing you mentioned, she made the BBC documentary Meet a Threat to Our Planet, and, and she doesn't mm. eat meat. She does loads of environmental campaigning, and she publicly had a pop at Boris Johnson over single-use plastics. So, you know, she put mm. her head above, above the parapet there. She publicly supports Black Lives Matter and all of that. So, you know, she's obviously really sound. Yeah. And on this Top of the Pops, she's... A warm, likable presence. It doesn't hurt that she has that Irish accent in which yeah. she she could basically read out a statement telling me that I've been sentenced to death and it would still sound lovely, you know. <laughs> um, and, and because she's brand new to me, and maybe this is unfair, Fern Cotton, not brand new to me, um, she has mm. the disadvantage of having made a very bad first impression on me back in the day, whereas Liz Bonin's brand new. I strongly took against Fern Cotton when she first emerged. And I can't mm. rewrite history. I can't pretend I didn't. For me... She, around that time, was the walking embodiment of a certain cultural shift that I hated. Um, around mm. the turn of the millennium, there was a watershed moment where this kind of abyss opened up. It wasn't just a generation gap, but I, I would say a gap in values and attitudes. And it was marked yeah. out in geographical terms by the shift between people who socialised in Camden and Soho and people who socialised in Hoxton and Shoreditch. Mm. And in verbal terms, between people who would never, ever, or would always use the word sick. Right, um, mm. so there was this, there was this new. As far as I, this, this is how I saw it at the time. I'm just sort of you know channeling my my then self. But there was this proudly vacuous, postmodern, post everything mentality among the hipsters yeah. of East London, where everything was held at arm's length in implied quotation marks as tongs, you know, and everything was just mm. a bit of a laugh. And they were taken over radio, they'd taken over TV in the noughties. You had your George Lamb and your Nick Grimshaw. And you had what Stuart mm. Lee called those Russell comedians they have now. <laughs> and yeah, right at the front of all that, you have Fern Cotton with yeah. her mean little downturned mouth and her dead shark-like eyes. And I mm. I really thought she was the embodiment of everything that was wrong with the noughties. I, I thought she was vacuous and thick and just one of those renter presenters who were colonising yeah. the telly. And in many ways, looking back, my, my dislike is irrational. Because that's how TV works, right? Yeah. It's not as if I was ever likely to end up on TV myself, um, partly because I didn't come up via the NME to BBC fast track, but rather the um, the melody maker road to nowhere. <laughs> but I was never someone who was dying to get on TV because I thought about it, right? Uh, and I used to talk about this with friends. And, and I, I thought, I hate nearly everyone on TV. I scream at it. I throw things <laughs> at it. I think everyone on TV is a cunt. So why am I going to be any different if I'm on there? So I, th- there's, there's a moment in, a, in an episode of Friends I recently rewatched, right, when they're all sat around um, watching the Gellers high school prom video. And they're all laughing because Monica used to be fat. Yeah. And, and she goes, shut up, the camera adds £10. And Chandler says, so how many cameras were actually on you, right? <laughs> and um, what, 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 I reckon is, what I reckon is, not only does the camera add weight, but it adds loathsomeness. Unfairly sometimes. <laughs> I, I really think the very act of pointing a camera at someone, and thereby you're giving them access to invade 
your living room and get all yeah. up in your face, right? Immediately <laughs> makes them ten times more hateable than if you just met them in the pub. Because you're like, who the fuck are you? Know, fuck off, who are you? What are you doing up in my face in my living room? And yeah, when, when you look into it, Fern Cotton has done a lot of admirable things. Her, her, um, her Happy Place podcast and, and the related books speak up about mental health. And, mm. and, and, and she's written a vegan cookbook, which obviously I approve of being a, a tree-hugging uh, meat dodger. Um, yes. She's done loads for good causes. She's not vegan, though. No, I know. She's pescatarian. But it doesn't matter. She, she, like me. Yeah, but by putting the book out there, she's making it easier for, for people to, to be vegan. But we agree on that, me and Fern. Fish are cunts, aren't they? Fuck fish are cunts. When's a fish ever rescued a child from a well? Never. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I remember the first time I went to Glastonbury, um, I bought a badge that said, fish have feelings too. <laughs> just because <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Oh, but, but yeah... Um, and the the other thing, and, and I know I drone on about this sort of stuff, but at least she wasn't privately educated, mm. you know, which makes her a bit of a rarity in the broadcast yeah. media. It really does. And plus, on a humanitarian level, we have to feel pity for her regarding this sentence on a Wikipedia page. Yes. Oh, no. Cotton dated Ian Watkins, front man of the band Lost Profits, in 2005. <sighs> I mean, just when you thought Billy Piper had some horrors lurking yeah. in the back catalogue of exes. Yeah. I really, um, I, I really, I did want to say, like, it, it doesn't matter. It's not like she's ever going to hear this, but I hope she's okay. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. And the thing is this, right, even if I did find her dead-eyed and vacuous as a TV host, so what? It's not as if she's any worse than the DLTs or the Anthea Turners of yeah. previous generations on that score, right? So I'm, I'm not going to say that I've made my peace with her to the extent that I'll ever willingly watch or listen to any of her shows for enjoyment. But, you know, I can just make the decision to quietly avoid her work without getting so enraged by it as I was at the time. Yeah. And so I, I, I do regret going so overboard and, and letting it get me so annoyed at the time not mm. that she'll ever have been aware of my ire or even my existence <laughs> you know but I want to apologise sorry once you start apologising yeah, <laughs> it it's like, I know she's caught me on a good day going? you know what I mean because I, I, another day I might have doubled down but you know there we go no it's true though you can just and it sounds really wet isn't it it's like well if you don't like it you can just not look you can just turn away but it is true you can just go it's all right you know go go live your life um, and I'll live mine and, and we good well, now more than ever, if it's 1977, it's a different matter. But, you know, now you can just not, not watch stuff. Satisfying your musical needs tonight. Benny Benassi, The Coral, D-Side, Beyonce, and the official Top of the Pops Top 20. But first, one of the songs of the summer. It's Wing Wonder. Greeted by our hosts, Bonin in a black top with red flowers, Cotton in a green top with shiny bits and a brown scarf, who tell us that there are intruders in the building in the shape of Fame Academy judges, leading Cotton to drop a Pink Floyd reference and Bonin to utter the show's well-worn by now catchphrase, it's still number one, it's top of the pops. We're then thrown into the 10th and penultimate Top of the Pops theme, the drum and bass remix of Whole Lot of Love by Ben Chapman, which has been going for five years now. I mean, they really should have done a dubstep remix of Yellow Pearl after this, but, you know. Yeah, nice bit UK Garage. 
Mm. I mean, already we're you know only sort of fifteen seconds into the episode, and there's quite a lot that's annoying, isn't there? Yes. I mean, mm. for a start, Cotton can't even get the Pink Floyd lyric right, which no wound me up. And <laughs> yeah, these kind of sinister figures, that man and woman, they cut to as if we're meant to know who they are. It's just mm. assumed, but we'll come to that. But um, the, the thing with the, oh. the the credits, the um, whole lot of love, is that halfway through it. They spoiler the whole show yes. uh, by telling you what's coming up. Now, Al, I know uh, you know the kind of twists and turns of Top of the Pops history inside out. And there were certain phases in the sort of classic era when yes. they did this. I don't like it when they do. I, I don't think any no. of us do, really, do we? No, 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 no. I like the surprise of somebody I, I don't fucking like and it's going to piss me off when they come <laughs> on. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because, you know, after that, there's going to be something that you do like. Yes. If your tagline is, it's still number one, it's top of the pot, stand behind that and go, yes. right, what we have chosen for you tonight, you're going to like enough of it that it's worth your while. And, yeah. you know, the point is that, you know, we know what we're doing. Yeah. It's just such a disappointment where it's like, no, don't touch that dial. Well, I literally just put the show on. It's, you know, yeah. 7.31 yeah. and two seconds. Like, no, 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 wait, 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 don't go away. I'm not going anywhere. What? During my Top of the Pops watching phase, I used to be absolutely militant about not looking at the telly pages in the, in the newspapers because they'd spoiler it and say, oh, here's who's presenting uh-huh. it and here's two or three people that could be going on. It's like, no, I don't want to know. You did the Lightly Lads thing, but with Top of the Pops. <laughs> Exactly, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's like everybody, you know, we've all squeezed a Christmas present occasionally, but (laughs) you don't open them all on Christmas Eve unless it's, you know, unless you're in some Scandinavian countries where that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah, and also (laughs) these two, that also is a mark of of kind of weird desperation. Like, here Mm. we've got something completely different for you. Yeah. That isn't anything to do with Top of the Pops. Like, well, mm. I, I thought I was going to watch Top of the Pops. What? Yeah, it's yeah. almost like saying, um, uh, this is Top of the Pops and it's number one. But if, if you don't like it, um, there's other stuff yeah. here. <laughs> it's really yeah. so needy. It's so needy. Yeah. And, and do you think they're just shitting it because, you know, it's uh, Combination Street starting on the other side? Yes. And that's purely, you know, uh, the fact that Bonin and uh, Cotton are stood there announcing the start of Top of the Pops means that there'll be some people on the sofa saying, oh, Oh, yeah, that's uh, Coronation Street time. Time to switch over. Yes. So they're sort of leaping in there. No, 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 don't go anywhere, please. Yeah. You know, is, is, it, is it that? You know, I guess it is. I feel bad for them too, obviously, being in that position, having to toe that line, you know, and say that and mangle that line. Because yeah. they're good, aren't they? Bonnie and Cotton. They're all right. No Simon Bates, though. So I miss the authority and gravitar of Bates. <laughs> He'd certainly tell you not to watch Coronation Street because it, it may contain northern swear words. To be, to be fair, he is prettier. Eventually, they introduce us to one of the songs of the summer, No Letting Go by Wayne Wonder. Born in Buff Bay, Jamaica in 1972, Von Wayne Charles began his dancehall career at the age of 15 as a member of the Metro Media Sound System. After coming to the attention of Sly Dunbar, he eventually linked up with King Tubbe and recorded a slew of records, including a cover version of Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. But when Tubby was shot dead in 1988, he eventually linked up with the producer Lloyd Pickout Dennis and recorded his debut LP, No More Chance. 
A year later, he moved to Penthouse Records and did cover versions of Fast Car by Tracy Chapman, Hold On by On Vogue and Forever Young by Alphaville, eventually linking up with label mate Buju Banton and co-writing Murderer and Boom Bye Bye with him, for which he can eternally fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. By the end of the century, he made a dedicated turn towards R and B, setting up his own label Sing So and working working with Foxy Brown and Lisa Left Eye Lopez, eventually picking up a worldwide deal with Atlantic Records. This is the lead-off single from his new LP, No Holding Back, which came out in March. It crashed into the charts at number five a month ago, spent three weeks there on the bounce, then dropped to number seven, but this week it's nipped back up again to number three, and here he is on stage. One of the five stages in the Top of the Pop studio, actually, mm. all named after crew members, and Wayne and his chums were on the biggest stage of all, called Chris. <laughs> After Chris Coward's sake. Chris. <laughs> and, ooh, it's a bad choice because that stage is looking very sparse, isn't it? Well, yeah, just one man and a DJ and a couple of dancers. His dog. One man and his dog. Yeah, he's, and he's not really kind of prowling and owning the stage in a very no. charismatic way. Not to me, anyway. He's having a go at a little prowl and trying to, like, work the crowd and stuff. You but- say he's prowling about, but only in the style of a kitten that's just getting used to a new home and sees its reflection for the first time. You can see like how kind of low down the stage is as well. Mm. I quite like the look of it. I mean, it's a massive kind of lighty uppy. I mean, it's a little bit local nightclub, isn't it? It's a bit sort of, Yes. you can see the headlines in the sort of local free sheet. Local nightclub installs new floor and it lights up. I love that. (laughs) But overall, the whole uh, production is is not, it, it doesn't, set anything on fire does it no i love a lit up dance floor you know i mean obviously it makes us think if we're of a certain vintage or, or even not of uh, of the of billy course. jean video and of course yes. uh, saturday night fever particularly the, yes. um, the 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 front cover of the album yeah, uh, yeah 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 it's got a long there's a storied history i'm sure there's a you know a, there's there's a long read in the the history of the light up dance floor and um uh, what was the what was the club as well? It's in the the common people video. Oh um, yeah, Eves where smashing happened. Eves, yeah, <laughs> so it was smashing. Yes, uh, and I, I dare say that we've all been to clubs where smashing happened. Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is where um, where the common people video was filmed. And yeah, I loved it. That was uh, the main selling point. Apparently, it was um, where um, Christine Keeler used to go with Profumo on on their sort of secret right. dates in the sixties. Or at least that was oh. part of the selling point. And she'd like put a chair in the middle of the dance floor and sit on it funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 Storied history. It's great. But um, yeah, and Wayne Wonder is, is kind of a, a very small footnote in, in this now. It's funny watching this, seeing this guy who um, clearly by his, his sort of chart position and, and his uh, status at the top of the show uh, was at least fleetingly a, a big deal. Because, you know, as I said, it was my job in 2003 to have a handle on what was going on pop wise. But I've honestly never heard of him until we looked at this episode. No. I saw the name and my first thought was, you know, Stevie's son, like, like, yeah. Damien yes. Junior Gong Marley or, or Enrique Iglesias. Yeah. But, uh, no, he was called Wayne Wonder because he spent lots of time at school sitting there and pondering things. Right. And, and reasoning. So and Wayne Ponder. Staring at the stars. Would have been, would have been. <laughs> yes, yes. And Lazarus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sadly, he's got nothing to do with uh, what we must call the ebony and ivory hit maker. But um, yeah, the, the name, it does sound like a piss take, doesn't it? Like some really on the nose yeah. comedy character from a second rate sketch <laughs> yes. series. You know, like like somebody who's watched 
the day to day and thought, oh, uh, we can do that. And they, I know yeah. we'll call a pop star Wayne Wonder. That would be hilarious. Oh, it's like somebody, yeah. or maybe uh, you know, a friend of Philomena Kunk, who's like, right? No, I've I've yeah. been no, I had a wonder about that, and I thought it was shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other mm. thing about this set is um, is that he's got on a sort of blue and white tracksuit, which kind of really coordinates, but yes. also with the kind of general blandness of the track and the performance serves as quite effective camouflage. Yes. You know, so you can hardly tell there's even anyone there visually as well as orally. Uh, he's in a blue Puma tracksuit and a white T-shirt, looking very sports casual. Yeah. He's gone and got himself an urban starter kit, hasn't he, which consists of some decks... Uh, a DJ with dreadlocks and movable arms to do all the gestures they do when <laughs> when they put on a record and got fuck all else to do for the next few minutes. Yeah, and uh, two honeys with a Z on the end in uh, batty riders. Yeah, very tight cycling shorts. I mean, if it, if it had a bit more pocket money, you could could have got himself a bouncy car and some youths doing some graffiti on a wall and then spinning on their backs, or indeed a bouncy castle. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that'd be even better. It's funny you mentioned it being a starter kit and 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 being uh, 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 budgetary issues because Puma, right? Uh, all right, it's all about perception, and, and maybe I'm not a sportswear aficionado anyway, so I'm the wrong person to ask. But I always thought Puma was a bit kind of third division. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's we, we could spend hours talking about okay. this. Son. <laughs> Ever since KRS One had a go at MC Shiny for wearing whack Puma sneakers. I've always been an Adidas boy. So, yeah, I I understand what you're saying. Yeah. At least it's not fucking Umbro. No, but the thing, that's it to me. Um, Puma is only just a step above what your mum gets you for Christmas when she's got it wrong. Yeah. And she's just... Gola. Yeah, or she's gone to, like, Woolworths and got their own brand thing that's got two stripes instead of three or whatever. Yes. Um, oh. There's a really good article about this in the Beastie Boys magazine, Grand Royal, which is yes. really hard to get hold of now, but um, somebody's archived most of it online, um, about the birth of Adidas. Or I'm going to say a Adidas, right? Because that's what yeah, we said in ahead. the 70s, and that's what Run DMC say themselves. Yeah. Um, and Puma, because it was two brothers, a bit like Lidl and Aldi now, isn't it? It's these sort of feuding yes. German families. Why aren't you fighting each other over the difference between Lidl and Aldi? <laughs> Exactly. That's coming. That'll happen. Trust me. Yeah. Uh, you boys and your sports wares. <laughs> Just as long as it's Velcro, I'm I'm good. Like, I, I don't understand why Velcro has not. It's one of those things. It's like you know. Finally, we've got the electric car now, but it took a really long time because it was being sort of suppressed and everything. Who is suppressing mm. Velcro? Velcro is yeah. the best. It, it's the, the big the shoelace. Best That's who's suppressing it. Big shoelace. Big shoelace. <laughs> big shoelace. That's who. Fat lace. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, Wayne Wonder, that guy. You remember that guy? Um, yeah, so, yeah. shall we get onto the song? Yeah. Okay. It's um, so based around um, the very solidly head bopping Diwali rhythm. Yes. Um, by. Um, I love it when white people say rhythm. That's. I'm not. Yeah, but it would be whiter still for me to say rhythm, yeah. wouldn't it? I think we should lean into it's it. It's based on the Diwali rhythm, I believe. <laughs> I think we should say it in the whitest way possible. We should really lean into the whiteness here. Do you just say rhythm or do you really commit and go redeem? Um, I I don't know. I would refer to Corrupt FM on on this. (laughs) (laughs) However they would do it, Mm. you know. Based on Diwali rhythm, uh, which is a loop. A loop created by a Jamaican producer, Stephen Lenke-Marsden. Yes, well done. It's something that you kind of can't... It's really hard to fuck it up. Mm. Because it's just a solid thing. Um, This actually would appear in two weeks' time as the foundation of 
uh-oh brackets never leave you close brackets by Lumidine, right. which is the famous one where it's sort of slightly out of key but in a really compelling mm. way and mm. that was massive and um you know if you don't twitch one muscle or another to it something has gone wrong yeah. and you should probably see a doctor um and also this it, it would form the uh backbone of rihanna's debut single in 2005 yes so in a couple of years time so yeah, pod replay yeah but which is a fucking banger uh, get busy by sean paul get busy by sean paul yes um uh, feet sorry feet sean paul sorry obviously yes, of course, to yeah. give him his full name yeah. um, I mean, basically the noughties are the noughties feet sean paul yes. let's get it right you know? and yeah. and they were better for it the thing with that with that rhythm, um, if uh, I'm, I'm going to say rhythm, <laughs> that rhythm <laughs> um, <laughs> is that, yeah, it was inspired by the Indian Feast of Lights, Diwali. Yes. So I don't know how exactly, maybe sort of Bollywood kind of. Are we saying Diwali right? Oh, are we? <laughs> Diwali. I don't know. But yeah, the thing is, there was there was um, a whole compilation. Yes. In 2002, on green sleeves called Diwali, all using the same beat, which. I mean, I'm trying to imagine, I've, I've not listened to it, but imagine listening to that all the way through. Mm. And the thing is, No Letting Go is on there. Yeah. So it's already a year old by the yeah. time it's a UK hit. So if this is the waters you're swimming in musically, if this was your thing, mm. you must be thinking, oh, fucking hell, not this, not this rhythm again. I don't know. But most notoriously used a year later in Dirty Kafar by Sheikh Terror and the Soul Salar crew. Which was yes, oh, which was a, uh, a, a a jihadi rap video, which basically stated that Tony Blair, George Bush, uh, the BMP, and Ariel Sharon should be chucked on a massive bonfire, and nine eleven was dead good, and there should be more of it. Right. Mm. Uh, but the problem is, it's a fucking tune. I mean, bad people, good music. Yeah. Hey, man, you've got to separate the art from the artist, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is very soft and weedy and um, nothingy. Oh, yes. Very slight. Very slight. It's meant to be a sort of lovely kind of um, sit on the beach, think about your woman kind of thing. But it, mm. yeah. also, it's a bit... Of the uh, the point isn't the lyrics, obviously, but like... <laughs> well, cause it, yeah, there's nothing to the lyrics. Oh, lovely lady, I like you. Oh. It's fucking colon, isn't it? Kick in the sun. Yeah, girl, I'm so glad we've dated. Oh wow, you old, you old charmer, Wayne, um, Mr. Yeah, Ponder. Why haven't we mated? This sounds a little bit. It's a bit of a confusing thing as well because it's like, oh, we're in love, we're sitting on the beach, we're drinking daiquiris, it's all good. But there's trouble in paradise. They say good things must come to an end. But I'm optimistic about being your friend, though I made you cry by my doings with <laughs> Keisha and Anisha. But that was back then. <laughs> doings, fucking hell. That's such a non-R word, that is. My non-R used to use that word all the fucking time. Whenever she ran me a bath when I was a kid, she, she'd always used to say, oh, make sure you go all round your doings. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. So is he Is he just sneaking in? He's just slipping in a little confession of infidelity there. Well, no, he's bragging on, um, Inter. <laughs> the song just goes to show that reggae and its offshoots have absolutely withered on the vine by the turn of the century. You know, if you discount Sean Paul. I mean, he was expected to be a breakout reggae dancehall star in the 90s, but he's gone and taken the R&B shilling here, hasn't he? And from now on, reggae is just going to be something that you can bolt onto your record or your mobile phone advert for a bit of urban credibility. 
which is fucking weird because in the 90s, reggae, or at least pop reggae, mm. was huge. Yes. You know, you had everything from, you know, Shaggy and uh, Red Dragon and Chakademus. And it was enormous. Like every summer, there'd be four or five just inescapable pop reggae songs. But yeah, by the time we get to 2003, it's, yeah, it's very much sort of Lego or Meccano yes. bolt on, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's your standard male R&B thing here, isn't it? There's a, there's a bit of gangster milkman whistling at the beginning. And he's de- he's dedicating it to the ladies. Uh, and there's a bit of shouting from the DJ who who goes, you know, oh come on, London or whatever. Top of the pops. Very offensive to people from Macclesfield who are tuning in. What about their issues? What about their needs? <laughs> Level up the north, DJ. Fuck's sake. We've we've spoken before about how uh, certain pop and dance records have some rap bolted onto them. Yes. But you could basically shrink down everything that Wayne Wonder does on this track. Just call it some reggae. Yeah. And just stick it in the middle of a Nelly Furtado single or a Shakira yes. single or just whatever. Yeah. You know. I don't know if they'd want yeah. it, but you know. Yeah. R and B is a strange genre anyway, because you know, the men always have to sound like soft lads who go on about the ladies. Or almost always cat shit. There's obviously some brilliant exceptions to that rule. But the truly great R and B's almost always made by women. Yeah. Even if all what they usually have to say is, You're skin, so what you're looking at me for, you fucking tramp. <laughs> Piss off. <laughs> you know, there's huge gobs of female R and B which is essentially no money. No fanner. <laughs> I suppose the comparison that's staring us in the face here, if we're looking at a guy who started out as a producer before having hits in his own mm. right, and he's wearing dark glasses yeah. and all of that, is R. Kelly. He's oh, kind yes. of like trying to be a sort of reggae R. Kelly uh, mm. by doing this. Yeah, It's not very good, is it? He's flat as a fucking pancake, isn't he? Yeah. He's singing over a backing track, obviously. Yes. So either he's got no in-ear monitor, so fair enough can't blame the guy or he's just a legit terrible singer mm. i don't know well the thing is that i always i always notice this just because i had like <laughs> because i had a few singing lessons one time and so i sort of know how to do it so you can just hear that everything is coming out on like the last 10 percent of each breath yeah which is like mm. just don't do it to yourself it's actually really easy to like not do that and he can't not sing but there's this unpleasant thing of like it doesn't sound relaxed it makes you feel tense because you're just kind of like right. breathe 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 you know mm. and it's it's just it is unpleasantly sort of just a tiny bit discordant if you're going to be discordant like really go for it like the lumidy track is so much better than this even though she's way way off which apparently wasn't her fault she she maintains that it was recorded to a completely different backing track and then the producer just slapped something else on yeah but whatever it is it's one of those weird things that just sort of works right and this doesn't really and if he hasn't got any ear monitor can't they spring for that have they spunked all the money on the fucking lighty up dance floor we've already talked about the branding even the record labels on the on the records that are spinning around on the decks top of the pops logo oh yeah slap right Mm -hmm. on them yeah like it's the wig and casino trying to hide the fact that it's that it's Wayne wonder no letting go (laughs) (laughs) that potted history though jesus christ King fucking Tubber reduced to producing Stock Aitken and Waterman songs at the end of his life. Fucking breaks your heart, man. Like the whitest thing. King Tubby meets Sonia uptown. But, you know, Jamaica did have this kind of long tradition of doing yes. that, going right back to people covering the Beatles, you know, like Marcy Griffith doing that brilliant version of uh, Don't Let yes. Me Down. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's it's just, just something that was just a standard thing. They would they would churn them out. They would hear what's coming on the airwaves over from the mainland yeah. US, and quite often, sort of like they'd be 
easy listening or country tracks and then somebody like i don't know johnny nash or whoever would just churn out a cover of yeah. it so I, I can i can see why they did it i'm i'm sure king tubby's heart wasn't in it necessarily yeah but the difference yeah. is simon back then when they did cover songs like that more often than not they made them better yeah. or at least equally brilliant in a different way yeah as pedestrian and generic as the lyrics to this song are, um, at least they're a cut above something else in his back catalogue, which you have touched mm. upon. Boom, bye, bye, in a batty boy head. Rude boy, no promote, no batty man. Dem huffy dead. Dis not a deal. Guy come near we, then his skin we must peel. Burn him up bad like an old tyre wheel. So that's not from No Letting Go. That's from the, as you mentioned, the notoriously homophobic single Boom Bye Bye by Boogie Banton, which uh, Wayne Wonder apparently wrote. So if that's true, Wayne Wonder can, once again, absolutely go fuck himself. And uh, yeah, I think maybe we've uh, wasted plenty of our breath on on the arsehole already. Well, I mean, he did say in an interview, Budger Banton said, mm. the standard get-out clause, number one, the Bible reckons it. Right. And number two, oh, it's about a paedophile, actually, that was in living in the area. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, so there you go. So he's conflating gays and paedophiles. Oh, that's okay, then, as long as he's only conflating somebody's yeah. sexuality yeah. with crime. Great, yeah, yeah. Fine, that's fine. Anything else to say about this? Um, the DJ... Um, yeah, God bless him. <laughs> bless him. He's, he's given it the old college try. But he kind of goes, take it to the bridge, and the, the, you know, which is not all that at all. No. I, I mean, I guess, you know, this is not a moment to do your James Brown thing, really. No. It's like, just, just leave it. <laughs> Mate, you've done your job. You've pretended to lift an arm and put it on the fucking record. That's it. That's your job. Just stand there now. Yeah, you've earned your 50 quid. Yes. But I mean, personally, and this may be a personal thing, but when I hear somebody say, take it to the bridge, the next thing that my brain wants to hear is, dirty babe. Uh Uh-huh. That's what I want. (laughs) You know, I don't want to hear more of this. Yeah. You know, why would I want that? Also, there's sort of slightly embarrassing fade out. The DJ's like, yeah, top of the pops, London, we love you. Top of the pops. London again. Fucking hell. I know. It's it's where they were though, to be fair. Yeah, but they all do that though, don't they? I know it's terrible. We all feel terrible about. Oh it. yeah, people have gone out on stage at Glastonbury and said London. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that is embarrassing. Which is quite funny actually. But yeah, there's that sort of slightly uncomfortable moment of like demi silence while Wayne brings the vocals to a close and the DJ goes, "Tab of the pops, London, we love you," and then everyone just like, "Oh, is it over now? Okay, yay." And, yeah, it's just a little bit... It's, it's a sad end to a sad start. Yeah, and the reason for that is it's because the song is so fucking slight, but it's got that rhythm, and you just think, oh, well, this is going to kick off any minute now. He's doing his <laughs> soft-ass bit, but it's it's yeah. really going to kick in, and it's going to get proper, and some arses are going to be shook. And it never happens. It doesn't really have a dynamic or a structure as such. So when he says take it to the bridge, that you think you're looking around for a bridge. You're looking around. It's more like a, a step. <laughs> a style. A, a ledge. Take it to the ledge. <laughs> so the following week, No Letting Go dropped three places to number six. The follow-up, Bounce Along. There, that's when you have your bouncy castle. <laughs> Got to number 19 in November of this year, and he was done as a chart act. By the middle of the decade, he'd gone back to covering rubbish 80s songs in a UB40 style, <laughs> including a cover of Hold Me Now by the Thompson Twins. Oh my God. Which was on some Adam Sandler film I haven't bothered to watch. And when he appeared in the identity parade of Nevermind the Buzzcocks, he revealed that he had gone into business at home selling yams. <laughs> He was still gigging and everything, but he was selling yams on the side. Makes a change from T-shirts and knocked-off CDs, isn't it? Well, the trick is to give them away for free, like, you know, the darkness with their pizza. Just, uh, you yes. know, a bit of free food. 
Yeah, maybe if he had the Puma logo burned into him or something. Yeah. That'd be uh, good. I think like a sort of Halloween lantern just carved in there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think he was just yes. in the pocket of Big Yam at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Top of the pops, way to Album in stores, no holding back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, it's Mr. P here. I'm the other Mr. P. And we are the hosts of two Mr. P's in a podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the chalk face. So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips and get ready for the lesson. We love you, Moving on up into the top three, it's Tropical Totty Wayne Wonder. Next up, a band who must be huge fans of the old Sunblock, featuring a member of Metal Maniac Slipknot. These guys decided to form a band just to show that they have a fun side. Now, I don't know about taking them home to meet the parents, but with their own take on the Billy Idol classic White Wedding, it's the Murder Dolls. After Wonder gets described as Tropical Totte by Bonin, she describes her next act as a band who must be huge fans of the old sunblock and that she didn't know if she'd want to take them home to her parents. (laughs) It's Murder Dolls with White Wedding. Formed in Des Moines, Iowa in 1994, the Rejects were a metal band put together by the guitarist Nathan Jordison, better known as Joe who had also played in local bands The Have Nots and Anal Blast. In 1995, Jordison was invited to play drums with a new local group, The Pale Ones, who eventually renamed themselves after one of their early tracks, Slipknot. And by the time they finally signed a record deal in 1998, the rejects were shelved. By 1999, with Slipknot's debut LP becoming the fastest-selling metal LP in American chart history and well on its way to going double platinum, Jordison developed a hankering for side projects again and was up for resurrecting the rejects. 
To this end, he linked up with Wednesday 13, the lead singer of Frankenstein drag queens from Planet 13, and Trip Eisen of the New York metal bands Dope and Static X, eventually changing the name to Murder Dolls. They recorded a demo, which became their debut LP, Right to Remain Violent, in early 2002, and the video from its main track, Dead in Hollywood, featured a guest appearance by Marilyn Manson, repaying Jordison for his appearance in the video for Tainted Love, and it got to number 54 over here in November of 2002. This is the follow-up, a cover of the Billy Idol single, which got to number six over here in August of 1985, and it's crashed into the chart this week at number 24. And as they've been in the country last month touring with Stone Sour, another Slipknot offshoot, they popped in to get Summit in the can for this episode of Top of the Pop. So yes, here we go, a prime example of a pre-record job. The Wayne Wonder one was was pre-recorded as well. You can kind of tell by the way they cut back and forth from the acts to the presenters. So yes, Sarah, in a previous chart music, you you mentioned that you like Slipknot. You saw them, <laughs> did I? M- Evil Panto, I think, was the uh, the phrase. You yeah, used. they were never going to be my faves. You know, I was not their their audience, but I did get it after a bit. Mm. I mean, I realised that. Yeah, and forgive me if I've told this before, but seeing them at Reading, I realised what they were about and who they were for, mm. and what they're doing is actually brilliant and very clever. Not clever in a mm. cynical way, clever in a very sort of emo- emotionally intelligent way, because they realised what the audience was, which is kids, and they were like a kids' party band. It's like these are grubby mm. teenage boys on their first do at Reading without their parents. This is Reading is like legendarily a kind of really gruesome kind of uh, rite of passage as it was at the time. A metal crash. Exactly, it was a metal crash. What they did at one point was get the whole crowd, this was on the main stage, so, you know, however many thousands of people, got everyone to to crouch down. They're like, oh, go crouch right down to the ground. (laughs) Um, And eventually, so everybody did this, and it was hilarious to see everyone just sort of hunkering down like like rabbits. And then, jump the fuck up! And so everyone just sprang (laughs) into the air. And it was like, this is so perfect. They understood that these are still kids. They're still children. They're just sweary, grotty children lurching upwards into adulthood against their will. It's play the fuck away, isn't it? It's play the fuck away. And that's there is a great sort of truth in that because it's like, yeah, adulthood is terrifying and being a teenager Mm. is extremely intense and very frightening in and of itself and you can't do anything about it and like you know there are a lot of young people who who feel that they cannot handle it they're going to look for for ways out Mm. which can be very dangerous and Slipknot was saying to them hey it's okay listen to this shit do some screaming connect with other people who who feel the same as you and know that we see you and we love you in all your grubby adolescent grottiness and just try to rupture your throat in some way with the ah of everything and you'll feel better you know and tomorrow will be another day and i think that's that's really beautiful that's like life-saving shit and that has mm. value beyond the whatever musical value they have. i don't actually know how well thought of slipknot are apparently in the last cause they're still going and mm. there's a kind of resurgent actually turns out Slipknot were really good thing. But it's so far outside of mm. what I know. I just don't know enough about metal. But, you know, this is this is life-enhancing, life-saving shit, which is the best you can hope for from music. So I yeah. knew who that was for. The Murder Dolls, I don't know who it's for. Mm. Maybe there's an audience for it in the same way that there's a type of horror film fan who will watch any old shit with fake blood in it 
Mm. doesn't have to be good on any level just give me a hundred weight of horror just stick the horror channel on I'll you know that's not me by the way sorry Christ no (laughs) it's a cartoon schlock nonsense they did actually appear in an episode of Dawson's Creek as like the Halloween party band it would make sitcom parents of the time furrow their brows Mm. that is what it's for it's a sort of a trash nonsense isn't it really yeah I agree with Sarah about horror films Um, I'm you know I I imagine we may have similar tastes in that you know you, you get people like Rob Zombie, uh, who's obviously from a similar world, um, Mm. making films called House of a Thousand Corpses. And for me, House of One Corpse is always going to be a better film. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Maybe House of No Corpses, but an implied one. You know, know, that's my kind of horror, uh, rather than, you know, uh, gallons and gallons of blood. It's interesting listening to Sarah's thoughts about uh, who Slipknot are for Mm. and what they mean to those people. Because I was I was on the bus the other day, and there was a young couple sat in front of me. They're about fourteen years old, and the girl had like half green, half black hair, mm. and the boy had a studded dog collar on, and they were kissing while keeping their COVID masks on, which was like, <laughs> <laughs> both sweet and weird. Um, but they were basically the same sort of emo kids you might have seen on any bus and in any shopping centre any year in the last twenty, mm. right? And and it occurred to me that they weren't even a, alive when this murder doll's appearance happened. Yeah. Fucking hell. That's um, fine, isn't it? But also that their 2003 equivalents would have been watching this, shouting mm. fucking yes, mm. <laughs> in the same way that we, uh, you, Al, me and Neil, shouted fucking yes in 1983 when Twisted Sister came on, yes. right? Because there will always be an appetite for this kind of band among a certain kind of teenager yeah if they catch them at just the right age and in other years it might have been aiden or motionless in white or black veil brides or whoever's on the front of kerrang right now i, I don't know I've, i haven't looked in a while mm. the murder dolls served a role and here's where i have to state an interest i know one of the murder dolls Ooh. oh yeah one of one of them's a mate ac slade who's on guitar one of the guitarists mm. he's on the he's the one on the far left of the screen yeah and uh, and he's been in loads of bands including joan jett's black hearts and Ooh. uh Ooh. Yeah, and and his own band, Trashlight Vision. Um, and I, I got him to DJ for me at Stay Beautiful once, actually. But um, I can't remember how we got to know each other. I mean, through a mutual friend, maybe. But we bonded over a shared love of the Manic Street Preachers, which right. seemed really unusual for an American metaler, you know. Mm. Um, in fact, I once took him to see the Manics in Cambridge, and I got him backstage. And I introduced him to Nicky Wire, who seems quite excited himself. Uh, and of course he was, because Nicky Wire's from the Valleys, and he's got that inner metaller, you know, yeah. that inner Kerrang kid. And Nicky Wire's always going to be more impressed by AC Slade from the Murder Dolls than if I'd introduced him to the bassist from the Young Knives or the Good Books or whoever. Do you know mm. what I mean? Um So uh, I, I got in touch with AC um, about this episode of Top of the Pops to see what he remembered about it and his answer might seem a little bit um confusing and misremembered but i'll come back to that Uh, but here's what he said oh yeah i was part of that one memory was that we performed it entirely live which is very rare on totps Mm. this really pissed off the other bands that performed that day one of those bands was marilyn manson he was supportive of the band until we started to do well so there was mm. some awkwardness between our two bands, but no drama or anything. Yeah. But the energy of a live band is always more impactful than a band who plays to backing tracks. That's not a diss or put down to the other bands. It's just an observation mm. and makes me glad we fought to play it live. 
Right, so back to me now. Now, as we know, um, Marilyn Manson is not on this episode. However, there's no evidence that murder dolls are in the same studio as Liz Bonin and Fern Cotton. Mm. They just cut to and from screens. And because of that kind of... We talked about the syndicated, flat-packed, IKEA nature of Chris Cowie's Top of the Pops. It's entirely possible that the murder dolls did record on the same day as Marilyn Manson. Yeah. Whether, I mean, it turns out it was in London, but it, it might as well have been Italy or France or Germany, you know, mm. one of these top the pops outposts. And, and Manson's um, clip just got used on a different show. So yes. if, if AC says he recorded on the same day as Marilyn Manson, he probably did. Do you know what I mean? You kind of got to remember if Marilyn Manson's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that's a little insight into how, how, the, how the show was put together. And also just the slight beef between these kind of icons of, the, of that era. Mm. Um, so, so the lineup uh, that we're looking at, it's AC Slade on guitar, Eric Griffon on bass, Ben Graves, possibly not his real name on drums, <laughs> Wednesday 13 on vocals, and Joey Jordison on the other guitar. Yeah. And I guess it was perceived as being Joey Jordison's band. And can I just make the obvious joke? I'll never forgive him for that handball in 1977. <laughs> um, Sarah's now completely baffled by this. Uh, now, I mean, Slipknot were very much not for me. And I, I did, mm. I, I really appreciated what Sarah said about them. And I, I you know, I get it. But at the same time, I, I you know, I wasn't the target audience. So I, I, I saw them at the Reading Festival in God knows well, pro- probably the same year. Mm, yeah. And I, I just found it so kind of basic and reductive and stupid but mm. you know yeah that, I, I know that's what it's meant to be but anyway I, I had a lot more time for murder dolls myself and you know murder dolls in some ways are part of this lineage that runs from alice cooper through things like the misfits and the cramps you know just mucking around with horror for fun and yeah for me all right i met the billy idol cover they're doing here it's a bit redundant because it's a song that has a brooding menace to it anyway and mm. you don't make it more menacing by doing a heavy no. metal death scream in it <laughs> you just <laughs> screw your face up and raise a fist at appropriate exactly. moments yeah yeah um usually when he says shotgun <laughs> exactly because the thing about metal is that if you're going to be a lead singer you've got to have proper fucking pipes and he's just got a wet straw of a voice he does a bit the thing with the original is that um, there's some modulation to it because he's sort of doing the the murmuring kind of "Hey, little sister," what you know, mm. and then kind of you know revving it at a certain point. But yeah. this is just like proper hairball singing from the sun. Hey, little sister! It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's proper Eric Cartman. Hey, little sister! Yeah. What have you done? Just full gravelly <laughs> screamy bit the whole way through and everything yeah. is whacked up to that setting, which I understand. Like, I laughed. I did enjoy this in spite of myself. Mm. Um, there's also the, what I always bang on about, the kind of American stagecraft, which is full in evidence here. Yes. You know, which is just, I love to see a guy, you know, spin round and point his guitar. And it's like, mm. you know, good old Wednesday, just mm. properly going for it at the top screamy um, register of his of his voice the whole way through. It's mm. a, what you call a death growl, I guess, the whole way through. Mm. And it, it doesn't help that with his dreads, he just looks like a fucking potato that's been left in the cupboard for two years. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a horror film I would like to see. What yeah. happens to a pota- <laughs> the demon potato that's been left yeah. in the cellar? Oh my God, it's alive! <laughs> the singing is not the point of this, is it? I mean, his breath, his breath no. control on this is so bad, he actually takes a breath in the middle of the word sister, <laughs> which is yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the place to do it, mate. I took right against this record. I, I was no fan of Billy Idol, but by about this time, I was accepting him as part of the canon. Because in the 80s, a lot of people thought 
Billy Idol was Rod Vicious. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he'd gone to America and sold out. But he's called Billy Idol. Like, he literally called himself Billy Idol. What do, what do you people expect of him? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's kind of a thing. I know. fucking love yeah. Billy Idol. He was so cute. He was so cute and ridiculous. He was great. I mean, fucking hell, by 2003, is there anything that makes you feel more old than hearing a song that was part of your life when you were a teenager Mm. being used as a cover version for kids who probably never heard it before? Fucking hell. (laughs) But there's another interesting compare and contrast here between this and the performance of Twisted Sister in the last episode. Twisted Sister had far less tools in their presentation armory, like just a couple of flash pots. And this lot have got you know, they've got the fucking works, haven't they? Have they? They've got their logos massively by the side, which is it's like a toilet sign for women. In a coffin. But with horns and in a coffin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> better lighting, better costumes, but eh, not feeling it. Debatable whether they got better costumes, really. I mean, D Snyder, I don't know if you can beat that, but that's for another episode we've already done. <laughs> no, I think they look fucking awesome mm. here, I'll be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I'm enjoying the look. I mean, first mm. of all, as, as for the song, you know, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the cover version doesn't do much for me. I, I had more time for their own material. That, that single you mentioned, "Dead in Hollywood," in particular. But yeah, I, I, th- I think they, I think they look amazing. I mean, for one thing, right? Black, white, and red is a colour scheme you can't go wrong with, which is a fact that is known by mm. Manchester United, the Third Reich, and the designers of pretty much every vampire movie poster mm. ever. Just black, white, and red. It, it works. It's shiny right? black as well. You've been waiting years to compare Man United to the Nazis, haven't you, Simon? <laughs> uh, no comment. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, they are wearing some fucking killer clobber here, I would say. some Several of them mm. have got the same sort of stack-heeled goth boots I was wearing myself at the time. And uh, yeah. Wednesday 13 is in this fucking awesome black PVC jacket thing with white piping on it i would wear the <laughs> shit out of that he's got a tie on hasn't he he's got a pvc tie I, yeah i know exactly where you could buy them from corporate goth there and there's a medical red cross on the arm which is a big plus oh, oh, thank you yeah if someone gets a nosebleed or does their ankle in in the front row we can go out and sort them can it yeah exactly so i, I mean I'm, I'm not the target audience for this because i'm too old even in 2003 yeah but if i was those kids on the bus that i saw the other day um or the 2003 equivalent i would have been bouncing off the fucking walls mm. with excitement at this yeah. i'm absolutely sure of that yeah fair enough i probably uh when i say i didn't know who this was for then yeah of course that would be who it was for in a similar way to Slipknot because um, Joey Jordison who uh, actually passed away last month um, yeah. uh, I, so I was looking up you know kind of the, a lot of tributes to him a lot of people who were, who were very very sad mm. and uh, something that he said was this was when he was in Slipknot but he said our music is so personal each person that's bought one of our records I have something in common with each one of them which is just mm. beautiful I mean that's like I think they were very all of them were very sincere in that and very earnest and really wanted to you know reach the kids mm. so you know this even though I, I didn't quite get that from this it took me a long time to get it from Slipknot because you know there was a lot of st- gnarly uh, schlocky stuff in the way of it and I was like what the fuck is this but I can appreciate this on that level too I can see that mm. there is that thing it's, it's a gang you can join you know which one of Slipknot was he because they were like the fucking metal village people weren't they they all had like <laughs> one in the mask he was number one which is they all had they each had a number he was number one his mask was like the the pretty one i'm not sure what it was and they had various they had different versions of the masks kind of throughout Mm. but he always had a variation on it's like the comedy tragedy mask but just the sort of you think of like the emoji uh no expression one (laughs) did he have like his dreadlocks coming out through little holes like 
it was a colander. One of them had that. <laughs> no, no, he had like very lank, sort of, sort of just Greek, very straight hair over the top. Uh, yeah. He had to stop drumming because he had um, transverse myelitis, which is where your spinal cord swells up. Yeah. It's really, really nasty. Oh, shit. Um, but um, he did, before that, he did all sorts of, he had like an amazing drum rig where they'd strap him to it and it was in the shape of a pentagram. <laughs> he would do a drum solo and it would tip up yeah. and rotate and everything. Nice. Apparently he's, you know, technically a really good drummer, yeah. but to me it does just sound like, it's like angry wasp dancing <laughs> on a tin of seven up type drumming. He's a typical metal muso. You know, a band the size of Slipknot by 2003, they can afford to take their time between albums, but he just wants to play, man. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. you know, why not start another band? No, or re- resurrect your old band. This is the, you know, they, yeah. And also for the pop craze youngsters, it's it's a great way to see people in massive bands in a more intimate venue, even though they're going to ignore your request for people equal shit. <laughs> yeah, everybody seems pretty happy. I I did just want to, just want to add to this. This track is from the special edition of... Uh, the album Beyond the Valley of the Murder Dolls and uh, I just wanted to read in full the track listing of this album please do I can't do the voice well I could do the voice but then I wouldn't be able to do the rest of the podcast so you know Slip My Wrist Twist My Sister Dead in Hollywood Love at First Fright People Hate Me She Was a Teenage Zombie Die My Bride Grave Robbing USA 197666 Dawn of the Dead Let's Go to War Dressed to Depress Kill Miss America B-movie Scream Queen, Motherfucker I Don't Care, Crash Crash, Let's Fuck, I Take Drugs, White Wedding, Welcome to the Strange, I Love to Say Fuck. (laughs) Oh my God, Let's Go to War, because the Manic Street Preachers had a song called Let's Go to War just a few years after this. I'm claiming it's because I introduced those two, you know. (laughs) The cross-pollination of Murder Dawson. But yeah, it's a fun trash thing, and I did chortle all the way through it, and I loved all the the PVC strides. Yeah, it always yeah. comes back to the trousers, doesn't it, Sarah? Trousers are important. The leggy mount button of chart music. Hey, and at least they actually played it live. They're not like those bent cunts who aren't fucking real. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, White Wedding dropped 18 places to number 42. A few weeks later, Murder Dolls were put on hold while Slipknot recorded their next LP, Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. They reunited at the end of the year for a tour of Europe, but were then put on hiatus due to other band commitments, reunited in 2010 for the LP Women and Children Last. But by which time, Jordison had developed acute transverse myelitis, a spinal inflammation, which temporarily caused him to lose the use of his legs, which led to him leaving or being fired from Slipknot in 2013, depending on who you talk to. Although plans were drawn for a re-reunion of Murder Dolls at the end of last decade, it never came off, and as we've already mentioned, Joey Jordison died in his sleep at the age of 46. All right then, pop craze youngsters, we're going to lob this manky potato into the compost bin and knock it on the head for a while and come back at your heart tomorrow. So, on behalf of Sarah B and Simon Price, I'm Al Needham. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Stay pop craze. <laughs> Chart music. Great big owl. Hello, I'm Alex Lynch, and this is Out of Character, a 
podcast about sketch and character comedy. Oh, that, you're not a wizard. No, so I am. I've got a beard. Oh, yeah, he's right. He does have a beard, actually. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy. And I sort of couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, I couldn't believe anything could be that good. That moment of uh, self-hatred uh, is is your rehearsal. That's what that's, you've been doing it your whole life. Find out what made them venture into it. Yeah, I mean, just getting that DVD and then binging through those was just some of the most profound comedy joy of my life. I'd spent my whole childhood being, I'll be honest, a dick. Talk about their characters. And it just made me really want to, like, make her move with her pelvis, basically. Maybe meet some of their characters. And um, because she's got, she's actually only got one leg. And that's <laughs> why she's been hopping. I don't know what to say. She's quite terrifying. That is correct. <laughs> and generally, just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. It's all an act, Alex. I'm horrible. I'm an horrible person. <laughs> that's so good. Recorded entirely in the first lockdown. The most joyous bit of idiocy. <laughs> uh, and, and Twitter was full of just people going, that's awful, or that's brilliant. That's Out of Character, with me, Alex Lynch. Hello, I'm a spider. Sounds nuts, which it was. Coming soon, wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.